0: Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially, the business podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes. In this episode, we cover Silicon Valley Bank's collapse and what this means for the financial world, the new business tax rate and EY's split, the renters leaving London at great rates, and what is on the mind of a typical CEO. All of this and more in this episode hi there chris how are you this month
1: i'm very well indeed ben how are you
0: yep doing really well uh, thank you um yeah ticking along um really nice to to feel the spring warmth um in the air um there's been a lot going on in the in the business news which uh chris i know you would have been keeping track of uh so i'm really interested and excited about this episode that we've got coming up um, today if you haven't uh, listened to thinking commercially uh, before what have you been doing we're in our third series now but basically what we're doing is supporting students recent graduates young professionals uh, really try and understand the world of work um, giving you really good insight for interviews or potential interviews and applications that you may have but also just making sure once you're trying to navigate the start of your career, um, hopefully giving all that insight and information which will help you um, with your jobs as well. Um, So what we're going to do, we're going to cover four topics uh, this week. We're going to go into a bit of depth on them. Um, but we're going to really focus in on the trends around them. So stuff that you will need to know, stuff that you will be thinking about um, in your day-to-day life to just become more commercially aware. Um, if you haven't um, read Chris's books uh, before, uh, Chris is a-, a wonderful author. Sorry to embarrass you on this uh, at the start of this podcast, Chris. Um, but he has a couple of books on um, knowing the the city. So uh, understand the plumbing of the city and also more broadly on commercial awareness. Um, we've talked about them before, if you listened before, but if you haven't read them yet, you can get them on Amazon and uh, and other places um, as as well. So make sure that you do read those. Um, the second thing I want to mention before we started this episode is Bright Network, uh, the company that brings you this uh, podcast. Um, we've got a commercial awareness webinar in the first week of april um so if you're a bright Network member you should have received uh, an email about it if you're not make sure you go to the website and uh and and find that there we're joined by um friend of the podcast uh jake shogger Chris, you've uh, you've worked with Jake before as well. And I Jake's have very much. It's terrific. Well. Yeah, well yeah, worth really, listening to. Really good, really interesting. Um, has a background as a, as a lawyer, um, but has done various other bits in, in business and even sets up his own venture um, as well. So a really good person to get a breadth of uh, knowledge from. So do definitely check out that. Chris, are you ready to get started on this? Absolutely, Ben. Brilliant. Let's get going. So the first topic that we want to discuss this week, and it may not come as much of a surprise because I think it has dominated the business headlines over the last three to four weeks, is the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank or SVB um, and the Aftermath of it, which has really rocked the banking world, but also the markets and the wider um, financial world. A lot of people have been um, drawing similarities to the uh, crash of 2007, 2008, which is something that I do want to look into um, as well. Um, But this is quite a big event. It's the 16th largest bank in the US. as you can imagine from its name, Silicon Valley, it's uh, largely focused on the on the tech sector, which um, has definitely taken a bit of a, a downturn over the last few months. Um, but it was managing something like just over two hundred billion dollars worth of assets at the end of two thousand and twenty-two. So this isn't a tiny little uh, establishment, a tiny little bank. This is a a, a huge multinational. Um, company. So definitely worth taking note and also really understanding the mechanics of it and potentially what's happened since and maybe what's about to happen next. Chris, first question is, what's happened?
1: SVB and what happened to it came completely out of the blue. I'd I'd never even heard of the bank before. And I was quite surprised that there was a bank called Silicon Valley Bank that existed. Um, But exactly as its name suggests, it was uh, really critical to the whole venture capital uh, ecosystem uh, out in Silicon Valley in in California. And what what actually triggered its collapse was that banks all over the world have to have different types of regulatory capital. And as part of that capital, they hold, amongst other things, government bonds, and what's happened as as we know and have talked about in the in, in the recent past recently is that interest rates have gone up. And when interest rates go up, the value of bonds goes down. And so what happened in SVB's case is that the value of the bonds it was holding went, went down. Now, that in itself only matters if you have to come to sell them. And unfortunately, it did. And the reason it did was, I think, quite peculiar, quite specific to the whole venture capital, private equity world. Um, Because interest rates have gone up, a lot of equity investors in startups who would borrow money themselves to then uh, use that money to buy shares in startups and, and tech businesses, they were no longer doing that. So those businesses that would have looked to uh, equity investors to provide them with more capital found that that avenue wasn't open to them. So um, they were looking for more uh, uh, debt from SVB by way of loans. And at the same time, and I think this was something that surprised people, the SVB was itself a day-to-day banker to an awful lot of tech businesses. And the reason for this was that tech businesses generally and startups, they're they're rather shunned by traditional uh, commercial banks that make loans. And SVB specialized in helping them uh, find uh, loan funding. And then once those businesses became quite substantial, they would continue to bank with SVB. Now, because of the way the global economy is going, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of businesses that were banking with SVB were themselves taking their money out. So when they found that they couldn't expand further because equity capital was closed off to them, they then started taking the money that they deposited with SVB out. It was that confluence of events that, that led to SVB having to sell its bonds at a loss, and that undermined the market's confidence in its ability to continue
0: yeah, really interesting, Chris. And just to give a bit of context of how quick this went, and actually, this was a surprise. There's no doubt about it that people weren't expecting this. I think quite often in uh, in in things like this happening, you can kind of see the writing on the wall for many years um, in the in the past. But this happened um, pretty much overnight because on the sixth of March, um, uh, earlier this month, um, SVB announced that they needed to raise. Um, 1.75 billion in capital uh, dollars um, to cover what chris was 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 talking about Um, then businesses that banks uh, with svb became alarmed they were worried that they were short of capital and the worry thing is is that they're like oh my god my my capital's in there and i need to get that out so all of a sudden everyone starts withdrawing money because they just need to get their money out. They feel they need to get their money out. And on the 7th of March, um, their share price decreased 60%. On the 8th of March, the bank was uh, collapsed. It was shut down. Um, so this is really over a few-day period. Obviously, in the background, they I'm sure internally, they knew what was going on. They knew they had a problem, and eventually they had to go public and say, we need to raise this money. Um, but as soon as they did that, all of a sudden, as say, everyone wanted their money out. Um, and the bank um, ceased uh, trading um, as well. So my next question, uh, Chris, is what is happening now across the financial world? If people were reading the business news, they would have seen that Credit Suisse um, were bought by UBS at what looked like quite a cut price um, deal. Was this tied into everything or was this slightly separate?
1: This was um, separate, but slightly tied in. Um At the same time as SVB uh, was running into trouble, uh, another bank called First Republic in the States was also running into trouble. Uh, This happens quite regularly uh, when a bank is in trouble. The regulator will get together what's called a lifeboat of other big banks who will all put capital in to shore up the, the bank that is failing. And so major American banks between them put in $30 billion into First Republic to shore it up. So that was completely coincidental. But the problem with what are called runs on banks, so a run on a bank is when depositors take their money out. And, and no bank has enough capital to pay all its depositors back at the same time, because the money that they deposit with it, it then lends out to, to borrowers. So Once you get a run on one bank and because banks lend to each other and they hold each other's bonds, it becomes very contagious and you get um, a run on one bank stimulating runs on other banks. So the fear was that First Republic and SVB were part of the same problem and actually they weren't. Now, what happened with Credit Suisse? And you said um, a few minutes ago, Ben, that there are some banks where problems are fairly obvious Credit Suisse has has um, had a very rocky recent history as a bank. It's had lots of things go wrong with it. So it was known to be a, a bank that could be in trouble. And it only needed something like this, especially not so much SVB, but the big American banks who bailed out First Republic. The feeling was, my goodness, are they going to be asked to bail out Credit Suisse as well? And with these very big international banks, they are all interlinked, as I say, through the various holdings that they have. So... Credit Suisse was a different issue, but it became sucked into this kind of singular news story about banks failing.
0: So governments across the world, and I think the one that gained most uh, news coverage was uh, in America. So Joe Biden, the American president, um, suggested in a a speech a couple of days after this that, um, broadly speaking, the U.S. government would would cover um, savings. Um, I also was reading an article uh, where one commentator suggested uh, it was the layman moment for technology, referring to when the Lehman Brothers collapsed um, in the previous financial crash in 2007-2008. Um, so are we seeing with this a pattern that we saw 15, 16 years ago play out again? Or is this something entirely different?
1: I, I think this is something different um yes, it echoes what happened then but it's it's not really comparable I think what what the u s did which was very smart um and um it happened in in Europe when the the then head of the European Central Bank said we'll do whatever it takes it's very important that regulators inspire confidence and what 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 happened in the u s so the the If you're a retail customer of a bank, um, there will be a guarantee. So in this country, the guarantee, if you've got money with a bank, is up to 85,000 is protected if the bank goes bust. And the US have got the same sort of system. But what was very unusual was that they did two things. First of all, they said the amount of the guarantee is completely unlimited. So whatever limits we had in the past are off, all of your money is safe. And secondly, and this was crucial with SVB, a lot of SVB's depositors were not retail customers. They were businesses. And the U.S. regulators said, even if you're a business, because usually this guarantee only applies to retail customers, not businesses. But the U.S. said, even if you're a business, all of your money is protected. And that that was huge hugely important because in a sense, then people knew that they didn't have to rush to get their money out. Even if they were businesses, their their money would be protected.
0: Excellent. That's always good to know. Lots of businesses hold money with SVB, as we've talked about. Um, Obviously, we've seen the actions of a lot of them when they heard that SVB might be in trouble with withdraw their money. But what I want to cover a little bit is in practice. What does that look like? So, if you're the financial director or senior in the uh, in the finance team of a tech startup in Silicon Valley, let's say for the sake of argument, what are you doing and what are you thinking when you're starting to hear these news stories uh, that SVB might be in trouble?
1: I think it depends on the size of your business and how established it is. If you're if you're a a, a small startup, you've just got going and the bank lending to you is going bust, your view might be, well, they might not require me to pay their loan back. So actually, that may not be a bad thing. What was shocking about SVB was because it remained the banker of choice to a lot of established tech companies. There were, for example, in the UK, a lot of really quite established businesses that it turned out still banked with SVB. Now, the good thing is that in those cases, those companies also had other banks on their panel. As as you become more established as a business, there are more banks that that want your business, they court you, you appoint them to your panel. And so just as a matter of prudent risk management, a very large business will bank with a number of banks for this very reason, especially post Lehman Brothers, that was a real wake-up call to, to um, finance directors and chief financial officers, that they had to be aware that banks, which in the past looked as if they would never go bust, could actually be quite quite fragile. So I, I think the markets were quite surprised at how many businesses internationally banked with SVB. But because that US guarantee was in place, uh, and because these businesses had diversified their source of funds amongst a number of banks. Uh, As far as I'm aware, no single business has been affected.
0: Brilliant. Let's leave that story there for this month. So as the old adage goes, there's only two certainties in life, and that is death and taxes. We are not going to cover the first, but we are going to cover the latter. And it wouldn't be a series of thinking commercially without a solid chunk on taxation um especially business taxation and i think a lot of people often switch off when uh, people start talking about tax but i think it is vitally important to commercial awareness and how the plumbing of the business world um really works and that interaction also between usually the government and business um as well because basically the government say if you're going to run a business if you're going to start making profit um you've got to pay us uh pay us some money to to do that in effect um so there's two bits that I want to uh cover one's very directly to do with the government one's uh, to do with uh, a, a massive employer that um most of our listeners i'm sure would have would have heard about um but both hopefully as interesting um as each other the the first part of this which hopefully we keep nice and interesting for you is all about the, the the government uh they have raised um business taxes um jeremy hunt delivered a budget a couple of weeks ago um where he said that this was uh, definitely going to happen we're going to continue um with this rise of that um tax chris before we get um started in talking about this specifically um could you tell me a little bit more about all of the taxes that a business might be required to pay?
1: Well, in, in a sense, it, it's very similar to what we as individuals pay because we pay a tax on our income. Uh, we pay national insurance. And then if we make any capital gains from investments, we pay tax on those. And it's the same with businesses, they pay corporation tax on their income, they are taxed on gains they make that lie outside their normal course of business. And they also contribute to national insurance. So it's very similar uh, to the tax that we we face as individuals.
0: Yep. Really good. And so the government is raising the corporation tax to 25%. Um, A lot of you won't remember this. I've got a very uh, specific memory of this for some reason. But in the early Cameron years, so probably uh, the early 2010s, there was a big push with uh, George Osborne and and David Cameron to reduce um, business taxes. Um, However, that's kind of being sort of reversed now. Um, What is the impact of this? And more specifically, um, does it kind of make businesses think twice about innovating? Does it make entrepreneurs think twice about setting up a business if they're not going to be able to make as much profit because they have to pay more in taxation?
1: Well, as you'd expect, business generally has said that raising raising the tax to 25% from, I think, 19% is a very bad idea, uh, which is what you'd expect business to say. I, I don't think actually... It has as bad an effect as people might think. Yes, undoubtedly, the headline rate is something that multinationals that are looking to locate a business in a particular country, they'll look at the tax rate and they might arbitrage between different countries, let's say, choose between countries based on on the tax rate. But that will only ever be a, a single Uh, uh, factor in their decision-making. As far as affecting innovation and uh, entrepreneurs, uh, generally um, uh, a startup doesn't start paying tax until it makes profit, which will take some years. So I don't think they're affected, but in particular, Jeremy Hunt has been very clever in doing this um, because what he introduced at at the same time, and this is going to sound exceedingly boring, but it's actually really important He's, he's allowing what um, old lags might, like me, would call 100% writing down allowances. Now, what, what is this? When you when you buy a bit of kit for your factory, you can set the cost of that plant or machinery against tax. In the old, old days, you, you used to be able to write off 100% of that cost in the year of acquisition. Then over the the last 20-odd years, the government started reducing that allowance, so you could only write down uh, a a certain proportion, usually 25%, um, over succeeding years until the whole cost had been written off. So you, you, you could set the cost against tax, but over a number of years. What Jeremy Hunter said is, over the next three years, you can set the cost of that sort of investment against the tax you pay in the year that you acquire the plant and machinery. Now, in practical terms, what does that mean? Let's say I'm going to make a profit of 3 million and I'm going to be taxed on that. If I use that 3 million to build a new factory, I've got a new factory and my tax bill is zero on that 3 million. So this is in a very real way how government can encourage investment. And investment, we know, is what a lot of people in the UK have been saying this this country needs. So essentially... By raising the tax rate on the one hand, yes, the government will bring in more money, which is what it needs at the moment post-pandemic and and with the energy caps that it's been underwriting. But it's also encouraging business to invest because businesses spend a lot of time planning around how much tax they will pay.
0: Amazing. And I think that's uh, very much become the uh, tagline. Or the uh, current Conservative government in terms of the, the economy. It's all about growth, investment um, and everything everything like that and I think there's lots of figures which we won't go into maybe we'll go to another episode about how Britain has stagnated um, a little bit more in terms of growth. Um, there was uh, something that came out about two days ago about looking at uh, wage increases compared to uh, inflation and again highlighting that um, our, our wages are stagnating um, as well and only by getting That investment, that growth within the entire economy, can things like wages keep up with inflation? People feel richer, um, be able to have more uh, disposable income as well. So, moving on to our slightly different story on tax, which isn't directly to do with tax, but actually uh, uh, the Department of, uh, of Taxation at EY has uh, has, has come up uh, in the business news over the last few weeks as well. Um, basically, to give a bit of context behind that, some of you may have, may have seen, some of you may be applying for big four uh, organizations. They often take on thousands of interns and graduates um, each, each year. Um, but EY is planning to split off their consultancy arm. Um, Something which um, I think they've been planning a lot in 2022 um, and it's been kind of moving into 2023 as well. Um, They're such a huge business. I think um, there was a suggestion that their current market capitalization is um, 77 billion across across the world. So one of the global uh, big businesses. Um, But there's definitely been some delays with this split as they work out internally some of the politics, and just how it's going to work. And a big thing that has come out is that their tax division, they're not sure whether it should stay in the kind of audit arm, the audit wing, um, when they split, or move into the consultancy arm. And this has caused quite a few delays. Um, Chris, tell me what's going on here.
1: Well, this is really interesting, and and if you are interested in in. Um, applying uh, to, to one of the big four, uh, this this may be useful background. Uh, originally, they were audit firms and a, every public company has to be audited once a year. That's for the benefit of the shareholders, so they know that the, the, the accounts are fair and accurate. But As you can imagine, if if an auditor says to a business, oh, you're not doing as well as you were last year, the business might turn around and say, well, can you tell us why we're not and what we should do about it? So the big four developed off the back of their audit practices, uh, really lucrative consultancy practices. The, the, The fees you can charge as a consultancy are higher than the fees you can charge on the audit side. Now, this is absolutely fine, but it gives rise, and this is why I was interested in the story, it gives rise to conflicts of interest. So in in a a related professional service context, that of law firms, um, if a law firm acts for a company in a dispute, it can't then act for the the company on the other side of the dispute as well law firm contact for both sides, and, and that's a conflict of interest. And then it develops into what are called commercial conflicts. So a client m- might say to a law firm or consultancy, uh, you can do our work, but we don't want you doing similar work for direct competitors of ours because although we trust you, uh, it, inevitably what you learn about us may have an effect on what you might do for one of our competitors. So we don't want you to do that. Now, in this case... Um, There there is a conflict because the audit practice owes its duty to the shareholders. Uh, It's employed by the company, but it's reporting on the numbers to the shareholders, whereas the consultancy's duty is to the director's. Uh, they they uh, appoint it to help them improve the business, and the problem is that if you're doing both for a company, you're basically uh, marking your own homework because the consultants are improving the business, and then the auditors are saying what impact that has on on the, the company's bottom line. Now, some 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 of the big four are quite happy to live with that conflict if it means that they can't therefore do consulting work for particular audit clients well that's a, a stream of work they'll they'll have to forego but others have said no this really does tie our hands too much aren't we better off splitting the two businesses so that we avoid these these conflicts and the reason why the focus in EY uh, has been on tax is that tax can sit in in both areas tax consistent on the consultancy side, but also tax is an adjunct to audit. If you're, if you're auditing a company, you may well need tax advisors to help you with the audit, and they may well be able to give the company advice on how to reduce the the, the, the tax take. And this is a, a, a kind of a, a particularly narrow argument, but quite interesting one of the arguments the audit side has been making about wanting to retain the tax specialization is that it makes them essentially a more attractive business to graduates than if tax went over to the consultancy side. So I think what's happening in EY, it's it's a very civilized internal discussion about what they should do with this. And they will work it out and once they've all decided then i'm i'm sure the split will will go ahead with tax on one side or the other or or it could be on both
0: perfect and i imagine it wouldn't be called uh the split internally in ey because there's been a lot of uh, media attention uh suggesting it's uh internally called project everest um is this uh, uh split that they're doing and uh what chris uh, spoke about ey has 13,000 partners um i believe um and they need to be uh, aligned broadly on a, on a decision i think it's uh 75 percent uh, in agreement um overall and i think there's potentially going to be a ballot um in the late spring uh to work out whether whether this is going to go ahead or decide uh, not to go ahead with this um, as well. But it's all very interesting because um, often I think people can go, well, Deloitte, KPMG, EY, PwC, they're all quite similar. They do basically the same thing. They work in the, the, the same way, whereas EY are pushing ahead with uh, with this, this, this change or potentially push ahead with this change, whereas uh, the global CEO of Deloitte has suggested actually they're not too interested in, in in making this change we're going to leave that story there thank you so much chris that was really insightful and interesting our next story of this episode actually very much um involves myself and a very small part of uh, of of what we're going to talk about um, but i'm one of these people that after spending almost a decade uh living and working in central london um i decided to make the move to leave london um and live just outside london so i still have the benefit of being able to go into the office um but have a little bit more space um, and a slightly different uh, way of life um, which i was um, looking for it might be that i'm just getting a little bit old which uh i'm gonna have to get to grips with but It isn't just me. And actually surveys over the last few weeks, um, one from Foxton uh, specifically, the estate agent, um, has really seen renters uh, moving out of London at a quicker rate for any time in the last uh, decade. Um, So what it saw that I think 40 percent of people that did move. Um, from a London property who was renting a London property moved outside uh, of London with I guess the other 60% moving uh, internally within um, London. But that's up from twenty-eight percent, so forty percent now, twenty-eight percent then, uh, about ten years ago, and you might have heard the headlines. You might have seen if you are renting in in London or even any any of the other big cities that prices are really going up. Which um, in my head, I sort of struggle with a little bit because it, it, we're talking about a slight economic downturn. You know, wages have been increasing, but it's sort of tailing off a little bit. Um, inflation's high, so people have to pay more for bills, for food. Um, but yet um, the cost of uh, living in London is is, is still going through, through the roof. Um, Chris,
1: first question,
0: why are rents going up so much at the moment, despite the economic uncertainty that I've just spoken about?
1: Um, I think it's driven in part by interest rates, because a lot of property owners who own property to rent it out rather than to live in it they borrow to to buy those places in the in the first place so if their interest bill is going up they're going to uh, try to recover some of that cost by increasing rents so i th- i think that's quite a big driver and then of course because of inflation generally the the cost of maintaining a property of of getting in um uh, people to look after the, the the fabric of it decorators and so on all of that is going up as well. And all of that translates into higher rents for renters. And also because of interest rates, quite a lot of landlords have been leaving the market. Uh, The government over time has gradually been reducing the the benefits of of being a landlord. And a lot of amateur landlords, people who might have owned one or two uh, properties have left the market. And that means that there is restricted supply. So you've got restricted supply. on top of that, increasing interest rates, it's all translating into higher rents.
0: So, Chris, obviously you lived in in London a, a few, few years ago, and actually um, where I'm planning on, on moving out of London is not far from uh, where you've moved to uh, in the in the years as well. Um, but can you notice a sort of big difference between what was happening when you were living in London, potentially renting, buying, whatever it might be, and what's going on now?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um uh, and I, I think the the real difference is it changes the character of of London, because in the old days London was a place where most people with with a, a decent job could could live and work, but it's reached a point now where having a decent job does not pay you enough to to live and work there, which means that because people are moving out, the character of London as a city is changing. It will always be popular. Uh, with tourists, with uh, overseas uh, visitors, it would always be popular as a place for people to invest and, and buy large houses, which they may or may not occupy. But that has an effect on what makes a, a city feel good to live in. And what makes a city feel good to live in is variety of shops, uh, having uh, uh, small shops, cafes, all of those sort of things, which as prices increase. They tend to, 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 to go uh, uh, by the way, as it were. And, and on top of that, one of the things that worries me is is for public services to continue to be provided in uh, a major city like London, where, where are the people uh, who provide those services supposed to live? Where are the NHS workers? Where, where, where are the transport workers? Where, where are they meant to live if they can't live in the city where, where they work?
0: do you feel that um london needs to reinvent itself
1: that's a really good question i i think i think london will inevitably change and as it becomes a more even more international and cosmopolitan city it will be less a city for um people who live in the, the uk to to go to i i don't think it needs to do anything to uh, uh survive and prosper um it will always be there. It will always be one of the uh, most attractive capitals in the world for people to go to. But if it becomes too expensive for people who live in the UK to go to, then they will be replaced by visitors from overseas, I think.
0: When the cost goes up, people do get in that mindset saying, is it worth it? I haven't got a garden. I've got a tiny flat. Um, You know, It's very noisy and things like that. And I'm paying this much extra. And all of a sudden, what actually uh, went for me is that I saw these little flats in uh, in Balham, where I lived in southwest London, um, tiny flats going for half a million plus, and then looked sort of 30, 40 miles outside London. And for the same price, you're getting a four bed house. And that isn't in the sticks. We're not talking about sort of the middle of rural Scotland or the middle of Somerset or anything like that. This is very much commute about 25 minutes in in into London. And I think even though if you look at sort of market towns outside of 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 london um potentially the high streets are, are struggling i do feel in that commuter belt um especially with what's going on now um there's definitely work to reinvent them themselves in that kind of commuter belt those market towns let's say um but also there'll be a lot of wealth coming into the areas as well with people deciding to move out of out of london so i think they're going to come even more desirable places to live something that London may need to think about if it wants to become sort of a, a vibrant city, a cosmopolitan city, which is um, really a hub for the for the UK and not just a hub for tourism and uh, external investment. Chris, my final bit on this, which I think we should uh, revisit um, briefly, we talked about it I think, pretty much bang on a year ago. But this all ties in to remote working or hybrid working. What I want to know in a, a post-COVID um, era, so a time where we don't have to stay indoors because of lockdowns, is hybrid working a positive thing? And do we still think it's the the best
1: approach? Uh, I definitely do. I, I think I think hybrid working is tremendous, even though it was prompted by the pandemic. Um, what I like about it is that it makes the division between work and life outside work um, much more fluid. Um, in, in, in my day, uh, you, you really lived to work and that's why you lived in London because you needed to be close to your place of work because the only place you could work was in the office. That That's no longer the case. And I I think this may have something to do with it. Again, in in my day, you reached roughly late 20s, early 30s, you might be thinking of starting a family. And at that point, you'd make the decision whether to stay in London or to to move out. And and I, I, I personally made the decision to move out. I thought it would be a very difficult adjustment. As soon as I started to move out, I realised that life outside London is actually it's much greener. Uh, that it's, it's it's a less dusty environment. Um, I I I think a lot of people uh, who are in their early twenties, just starting their careers, think that they will spend the rest of their lives in London, and then are pleasantly surprised when actually they they realise they, they they don't feel that need. And translating that into the modern world, I think what's tremendous is that. People are now thinking in terms of uh, more holistically about their lives and their careers and and what they want to do with with both of those things and how those things come together. And it has a real impact on how they want to live and where they want to live. So that, again, in my day, the idea of living uh, well outside London and commuting in was just unthinkable. But now, if you don't have to be in the office uh, all the time, why shouldn't you do that? Because you will get the benefit of a much greener existence outside london so i'm absolutely in favour of it and
0: companies need to need to adapt um people are demanding that little bit more um, we've obviously had the trial of the the four day week uh, which went on the last sort of six months I, I believe um and i think one or two of the companies have said that they're going to continue it full pay but you only work um for four days a week i think there's probably more uh more research needs to be done about that and the implications uh, of it as 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 well before we see that Potentially rolled out further, but but let's see um, how that goes over the next probably decade um, or 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 so. Um- but it's really interesting. And if you ever want to uh, know how the the, the public are, are thinking, um, it's looking at the Google searches um, at specific uh, times. But in the last five years, there's been a 410% increase uh, of Google searches um, of the term remote jobs. And so if top talent is looking for remote jobs or hybrid jobs or not expected to be in the office, yeah, of course, there's a compromised employer need to reach. They can't just bend over backwards. They need to make sure that their business still functions and works well. But I think a lot of businesses, and will continue to do so, will really have to analyze what jobs need to be five days a week Um, what jobs they feel actually you know what's good for company culture if they're in two to three days a week Um, and whether actually there are some jobs which uh, they can try and get better talent in especially if people want to be pretty much um, fully remote possibly checking in uh, one day a week or even a couple of days um, a month as well so yeah i think it's a, a really interesting interesting thing i think i personally think hybrid working um, has worked well as well from what i i can see some jobs it isn't isn't possible i also think um as someone starting their career it's very important to get some days in in the office as well it might not be five days a week learning from people the so-called water cooler conversations um working out when your supervisor manager is is going to be in making sure you've got days with them and just soaking up everything like a like a sponge I think that is the one thing where I just don't think you 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 get that exposure uh, by working remote you just can't see everything that's going on within a, a business and um, the dynamics uh, at play so I think there is almost like a separate thing for maybe very junior staff um, but i think as time progresses people get more experienced have uh, taken on that kind of very initial learning i think um, setting people up if you can for a um, hybrid role uh, works really well and saves the the business a bit of money on uh, very expensive office cost in central london too i think we'll end that story there for this week If you're a regular listener to Thinking Commercially, you'll know that at the end of each episode, we cover a bit more of a fun, a little bit different um, story um, from the the three maybe slightly more serious uh, ones looking at all of those in-depth business trends. And I thought this week we could cover the concept or the idea of what is on the CEO's mind. So the chief executive officer, the likely to be the most senior person in a large business or small business, I guess, as well. But uh, we often talk about it in reference to these uh, big FTSE 100, FTSE 250 um, companies. There's lots of very famous CEOs that you will uh, see in the the media. Um, But there's actually a lot that you would have never heard of that are doing very, very big jobs, earning multi-millions per year. Potentially getting a, a huge bonus, which often might end up of on the front pages of uh, certain newspapers, as some of the energy, uh, big energy companies' CEOs have uh, found themselves in uh, in recent months. Um, so, I think what a lot of people don't understand is what a CEO actually does, especially if the person has thousands, tens of thousands of employees underneath them that are all working in different departments. They've got a brilliant team of executives uh, across across the board. So Chris, I'm quite interested to know, and hopefully our listeners will be too, of what they actually do and almost getting down to the question of what keeps a CEO up at night. So first of all, what would you say is going to be on a typical CEO's to-do list?
1: Well, I I think it's a mixture of um, daily tasks, some quite routine, some uh, on the face of it, not terribly important, uh, dealing with all sorts of questions that that arise at all sorts of different levels in the organization. But essentially, I think what CEOs spend a lot of their time doing is, is actually thinking. And I think what they focus on are, and their priorities tend to be how can we as an organization get better at what we do? What are our competitors doing that could be damaging to us and our our markets? And how indeed are our markets changing? Um, Who buys what we produce? Why do they buy it? How are their requirements changing? Are we aware of those requirements changing? And what are we doing to to reflect those and improve the products or services that we provide. So a lot of it is about what do we need to do to change, to adapt to the world outside, which is changing around us.
0: I also feel that hiring is a is a very key part of what a CEO does. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, they always say that the most successful CEOs hire people who are better than them, mm. and I think that's true. I, I think if you're trying to improve an organisation, you want to make sure that the people you're bringing in are better than the the people you've had in the past, and that goes for you too. That you you know you you've really got to improve the organisation to the extent that if you yourself were applying in the future, the organisation wouldn't take you on. But you have to be very self confident to surround yourself with people who are better than you so in a sense it's that self confidence to acknowledge your own weaknesses and to recognize the things that other people bring that you can't provide that that is really important in a ceo's makeup
0: and um, one question i think that's often often asked is that is there any particular personalities or behavior that a good ceo is likely to have.
1: Some of the best CEOs on the face of it don't appear to do very much. And the people who work for them will often say, oh, I really like that CEO because they let me do what I felt was necessary. So your point about not micromanaging. But I think the best CEOs are always asking questions. Well, why do we do things like this? Why are we doing this? How does that work? What is your role? How does that improve the business? So they're always asking questions of the people around them. But I think also they paint a picture, uh, what consultants would call a vision of where the business is going, which is what pulls the people along in their wake. They they can show how all of the energy and enthusiasm of the people working with them in their team is propelling the organization in a particular direction. And they're also, they, they have a lot to do with the culture of the organization, the way we do things around here, as it's, often, as it's often talked about, and what the purpose of the organization is. So I think, by contrast, the worst CEOs are the ones that shout and dictate, and often the best are quite quiet. Um, I mean, the, um, the founder of Walmart, he was a very quiet individual, and often when he went around the supermarkets, that made up the Walmart chain, um, the employees wouldn't know that he was there. And often what he would end up doing is, believe it or not, rooting around in the bins at the back of the store to see what was being thrown away because he didn't want any waste in his stores at all.
0: Um, and I think one thing I want to to pick up on from maybe what what I've seen is that there is a balancing act, I feel, between having that authority People in the organization and externally believing you've got that authority, but not pushing it too far that people become nervous of you or scared to give bad news to you. So you've got that kind of balance, I think, between being that authority figure and being approachable at the at the same time. And I think the best leaders and the best CEOs um, have that um, in abundance where people from any uh, level of the organization Know that that person is the CEO and they're an important person and they are, you know, the, the the top of the chain, so to speak. But also, when they're asked questions or talking to them, that they feel that they can actually give sort of honest answers, give honest feedback, talk about the challenges, and not just talk about um, the successes and trying to make themselves look as, as as good as possible in in front of the the CEO. And I think it sounds pretty obvious, but I think in reality, actually, that can be quite a difficult balance um, to, to to tread chris over to you
1: and ju- just on on that point one of the most important things a ceo has to do and has to have the confidence of their team around them is to be decisive there'll be questions coming up all the time which are really difficult to resolve and however you resolve them there will be people in the organization who don't agree What you have to do is to encourage a culture, exactly as you say, Ben, where people are prepared to tell you uh, the truth, tell tell you about things as they actually are rather than as you'd like them to be, but then will abide by whatever decision you take, whether or not they actually agree with the decision. If they have faith and trust in the CEO, then they will go along with decisions, even if they don't particularly agree with individual ones. And of course, the most effective CEOs bring their team into that decision-making process. But ultimately, the buck stops with them. They have to carry responsibility for those decisions. Question on pay.
0: So looking at the research, I think there was a PwC study last year. Uh, the average FTSE 100 CEO earns about £4 million per year. Do they deserve that much money?
1: Oh, well, that's a difficult question. Why should a CEO be paid uh, more than most other people in an organization? And CEOs, uh, they're not always the most highly paid. There may be um, highly qualified specialists in an organization who earn more, but generally they they will be amongst the highest earners. In a sense, it's because they can have more impact on an organization than any other individual through all of the things that we've been talking about. My own view, personal view, is that executive pay has got out of hand. If you look at the stats talking about the multiples by which uh, chief executive pay outweighs that of the lowest paid employee in a company, um, the the multiples over the last 20 years have, have become, I, I think, absurd. I have no problem with entrepreneurs who build a business from scratch and may end up as billionaires. They've created something but nowadays there's a sort of uh, merry-go-round of CEOs moving from one big company to another they take on an established business um they're paid very highly without necessarily uh, making any changes to that business which justify the pay and although there have been attempts over the years to develop long-term incentive plans which align the CEOs interests with those of the shareholders and and or other stakeholders Often those incentive plans don't work very well. And finally, if you ask um, headhunters, for example, why uh, chief executive pay is so high, they'll usually say something like, well, this is an international market and organizations are competing for talent, but it's a market that feeds on itself. So there's a vested interest on the part of all of those involved to drive chief executive pay up. And I myself personally think think it's reached a level where it it's just not justified to the extent um, that across the board CEOs earn what they earn.
0: And just to clarify, obviously, if you've got a CEO of a small business or a startup, um, they're not going to be earning these sort of sort of wages. Obviously, it's. Probably a bit easier to become a CEO of a uh, a company that has a hundred people rather than the one that has um, twenty thousand people. Um, but as I say, when we look at the Footy One Hundred, we are looking at the one hundred um, top uh, CEOs, top executives uh, in 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 the UK. So you know, yeah, sure, it's a eye-watering amount of money, but only a very small proportion of uh, business leaders are 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 getting it. Hopefully, that's given some insight. There is occasionally. The question in an interview that i've heard from uh, our members that does ask the question what does keep the ceo up at night or what is the ceo thinking about so if you do get asked that um hopefully that has given you a lot of insights and things that you can say Uh, i potentially wouldn't talk about the ceo's pay and the the fact that they might be after a little bit more pay um but i think a lot of the insights in there were really good chris do you want a, a closing word on it
1: Yes, just on that question, what keeps the CEO awake at night? Um, it's a very good question for advisors to ask themselves. So, if if you're management consultants, or or your your uh, auditors, or tax advisors, or lawyers, it's a very good question to 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 ask yourself of CEOs of of client companies. Um, so. Uh, it's something that in training those who work in professional service firms, it's a question that I, I have used when encouraging them to develop their business development skills. And just just to to answer it myself, what do I think keeps a CEO awake at night? I think they worry about black swan disasters. So things that, that can come completely out of left field, and they will often get their team to brainstorm It's called contingency planning. What are the things that could go really badly wrong that could be unexpected? And I think connected to that, they worry about corporate reputation, especially in a social media world. What is the reputation of the organization, its products, uh, the people who work in it? What do we need to worry about in terms of the way we're perceived as an organization? And, And then finally, a bit more prosaic, but They worry about the share price. Um, They monitor the share price of their organization, uh, certainly on a daily basis, because if there is a spike in the share price, if the share price goes up for no particularly good reason, it may be that they are going to be a target for a takeover. And that means the CEO is likely to lose their job. So just from a personal point of view, they keep an eye on the share price. And also they care about that because that's what shareholders Um, care about and also going back to pay usually their bonus is tied in one way or another to the share price of the organisation which they're the CEO
0: Great stuff, that's everything for this episode What a fantastic episode. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. Hope you got lots of insight. If you want more from Thinking Commercially, do follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram. Loads more stuff around the episode. Until next time, have a fantastic month. See you soon.